Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Occupy Interview. Uh, this episode is Occupy Securitization, and I'm proud to say our guest is Charles Lincoln. Uh, please say hello, Mr. Lincoln. Charles Lincoln in New Orleans. <laughs> you said that right, too. We say it the same way up here. Uh, and Melinda, our, my co-host, uh, say hello, Melinda, and please introduce Mr. Lincoln. Well, Carrie, it is my great pleasure to introduce Charles Lincoln III. Charles is um, has a very interesting background. His Ph.D. is from Harvard in anthropology and history. He was a working archaeologist for a period of time in Mexico when he encountered um, problems with the legal system there that he simply witnessed as a problem that needed to be coped with. So he went back to school and got a JD from the, from the Chicago School of Law. And after that, he encountered some really horrific behavior and reaction uh, because of what he had done. And I think it took him quite a while to realize that it actually all links back to securitization. But Charles is extremely prolific, and if you look for his articles, you're going to find an amazing amount, amazing body of work, and it's all really very brilliant. Uh, Charles actually uh, wrote the Social Security piece that's on my presidential campaign site as well. So, Charles, I'm so glad you could be with us, and I know this first part of the interview is going to be perhaps a touch painful for you because no matter what and how vindicated one can feel, it's still painful to be attacked. I won't say it's been fun, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I I kind of got used to it through the years, and it's almost a way of life. I think that uh, up to a point living in living in New Orleans, you realize that many worse things can happen to you than just have people say bad things about you. So <clears throat> that's one one source of philosophy here. Uh, but yeah, um, it's been an interesting life. What can I say? And uh, just just for the record, uh, you call it the Chicago School of Law. The proper term is uh, the University of Chicago come out the law school. <laughs> well, thank you for that um, that correction. I appreciate it. Well, it's, it's important to, to because, in, in a sense, because, you know, not during my era, of course, but uh, some years afterwards, a fellow by the name of Barack Obama was uh, teaching the constitutional law at that place, and I just always like to draw the the contrast between him and me because in some ways we've had sort of parallel lives uh, and touched in a lot of the same places in the world uh, and in every other way we're pretty much <coughs> on the opposite side of the <coughs> excuse me, opposite side of the universe well I'm, that's probably true that, but that certainly is a provocative statement would you like to enlarge on it a little bit well, uh, among other many other things, uh, Obama owes his uh, career in large part to Larry Summers at Harvard uh, and uh, to people in Chicago who were interested in <coughs> urban development through credit banking based on securitization, and um, that's a very interesting thing to contemplate on this on this program that's focusing on securitization because, uh, in a sense, Obama owes his life and his, certainly his presidency to the very interests that we are, uh, you know, talking about occupying here, uh, the, the, forces that, the forces of the major banks in New York, uh, Larry Summers' playground, basically, and um, the Chicago elements that, Saw this as uh, as uh, as a great way to create a new create a new a new and very compliant president. And in fact, I think one of the most interesting things about the, the, what's happened over the past five six years 
uh, you would, I would have thought, based on my experience in history, that a democratic administration would have been tremendously sympathetic to the plight of people uh, in a national foreclosure epidemic like we've been having, uh, and uh, neither from Obama, the Obama administration, nor from the Senate in particular have we seen anything. And when the Senate was holding hearings on the, uh, you know, the robo-signing scandals of 2009-2010, the big question that people like Barbara Boxer, uh, Diane Feinstein were asking was, well, when are you going to be able to start foreclosing again? Uh, you, the, you've been interrupted by this scandal, by this, by these improprieties. When are you going to be, be able to get back to business of confiscating everyone's property? That's essentially what the Senate hearings were about, was how the banks were being uh, impeded in their foreclosure process by these troublesome people who were saying that there were all these irregularities in recording irregularities in uh, in um, transfer of documents. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we're going to get into that in a little while, but I think this first part, what we want to do is put to bed, so to speak, some of the things that have been said about you online. Now, I looked briefly at it, um, and what they have tried to intimate is that you engaged in criminal behavior which was at the core of the fact that you lost your law license in Texas. And, of course, that's not the case. Uh, The reason uh, that you lost the license is because you did something that they hate much more than crime. And why don't you tell us about that? I'm not not sure exactly which episode you're focusing on. I looked at the Wikipedia uh, article that you you sent to me, and... um, that the, the majority of that article uh, has a very clearly identifiable author, and uh, unfortunately, I mean that that author is someone who's <coughs> you know got a got a certain amount of respectability in the in the movement in, on our side, so to speak, and that's a former very good friend of mine, John Rowland. Um, when he's writing about me filing false liens or he's intimating that I've filed false liens, he's basically picking a personal fight with me. And that isn't what you really wanted to talk about, but that's so much of what is on the Wikipedia article. He's clearly the author. The the phrase, the way you can tell it's him is because it's the same phrase used in the Wikipedia article and on his uh, own constitution.org site about me claiming that I, I prey on the innocent or something like that. Um, so that's the Wikipedia article is uh, is like a personal vendetta of a of a former friend, I'm afraid, uh, and I don't know if that is exactly newsworthy or not, but I haven't figured out a way to dislodge it. Uh, I know, in fact, none of my troubles, either real or uh, you know invented, ever had to do with putting false liens on anyone's property. And that's, you know, the, the, the center of that little article there. He doesn't go into detail about um, the events leading up to my disbarment, but in fact um, what that had to do with was uh, in 1997 I had uh, filed a series of seven civil rights suits. I was a licensed attorney practicing in Texas at that time in Travis County, which is where Austin is, and I had uh, filed a series of seven uh, civil rights suits alleging police brutality, uh, police theft, uh, conspiracy to burglarize, and just ordinary things like false arrest and, um, you know, false imprisonment. And the case that got most famous out of all of those was in some ways, uh, sadly enough, it was, it was the, the strangest and you might say most trivial fact uh, pattern, a lady uh, by the name of Gail Atwater, really a wonderful lady and really one of the pillars of uh, suburban Travis County, North Lake Travis community. uh, community. She's the wife of Michael Haas, who used to be uh, chief of of surgery at St. David's Hospital in downtown Austin. 
she was arrested in front of the auto, right in front of the Lagavist uh, Elementary School with her two children who were students there. Uh, and she was arrested for what at least one Fifth Circuit judge uh, referred to as the heinous crime and dangerous breach of peace uh, represented by not having her children in seatbelts. Um, and um, these, uh, the, there were two children. Uh, the maximum legal penalty for failure to buckle your children in seatbelts in, in May of 1997 was $25 each. It's about as low on the scale of, the, of criminal offenses in Texas as anything can be. Most parking tickets have higher, had a higher fine than that. So this was, uh, at least by the legislative choice of the you know, elected representatives of Texas, a very low-level crime. But a policeman by the name of Bart Turek um, arrested her after detaining her for an, about an hour and a half and yelling at her in public in front of the elementary school, um, arrested her, took her in jail, and at that time, the legal maximum uh, that you could be held in jail without uh, being charged with anything was 48 hours, and they held Gail for 48 hours and then released her. Uh, because they had nothing to charge her with, and she had money on her to pay the fine. You know, uh, if they had wanted to assess, to charge her and assess the fine right away, they could have done it immediately. Um, so uh, it was all very strange. And uh, this was a community called Lago Vista up in northwest Travis County, uh, Hill, Hill, Texas Hill Country. And anyhow, Gail and her husband were the sort of people who, when they had problems with the city, they invited the, the mayor and the city council over for dinner and asked for an apology. It was all they were asking for. And the city and the police chief absolutely refused to, to apologize. And so they came to me and asked what I thought of all this. And as it happens, I had been collecting by that time a long series of grievances and stories about the Lago Vista police especially this one character uh, named Bart Carrick and uh, anyhow the long story short ended up filing a series of several, seven civil rights lawsuits against what was at that point my hometown many people questioned the judgment of you know filing a suit against my, my hometown uh, possibly bad political judgment on my part, because it made me uh, a very vulnerable target as an attorney, and all sorts of things happened, and again, it's sort of a soap opera, uh, Peyton Place type of uh, series of events, but they got to my... Uh, my housekeeper, my maid, um, and they uh, threatened her, I fear, with deportation, her and her family. They were perhaps not entirely legally in this country. And um, they basically got them to agree to support making charges against me, although to Marcelina's credit, she never, ever signed anything that they put her name on. One thing, she couldn't have honestly signed it because everything that they put her name on was written in English, and she was monolingual in Spanish. Um, but if she knew what the content was, she probably wouldn't have signed it there. Basically, she agreed to go along with it all, and um, that became a little scandal that they used against me uh, to generate a criminal indictment. Uh, and the criminal indictment, of course destroyed whatever uh, lingering credibility there would have been in these civil rights cases. Uh, the civil rights cases uh, all ended up being dismissed or summary judgmented out, um, except for one, actually. I just one, one made it on to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, but the lawyers who took over from me after that kind of 
made sure that that one got blown uh, as well. And then Gail Atwater's case made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Um, and, of course, that was a very traumatic experience for her and her family. They ended up spending, you know, almost a million dollars in attorney's fees to take it to the Supreme Court, even though they got some help from the Cato Institute. And um, that that's the f- first thing that's mentioned on Wikipedia is that I was the attorney who originated Atwater versus Lago Vista. It ended, it ended up being a five to four defeat for freedom. Uh, Justice O'Connor wrote the dissent, and she, it was a very spirited dissent. Um, always made me feel good because basically she said that the um, uh, allegations were sufficient uh, to support this was a false arrest, but the majority in April of 2001 took great care to make sure that people could be arrested for anything and any reason, even if the arrest had no direct connection to any threat to public security or violent behavior or even the ultimate punishment that was available for a particular crime. Uh, and I, I always, I, I, of course, in April of 2001, we didn't know it was going to happen, but by the fall, uh, of course, the Patriot Act came in and embodied those very principles that the Supreme Court had enunciated first in Atwater, uh, that arrests do not have to be reasonable to be legal, and uh, my whole contention throughout the Atwater case was that reasonableness uh, had to be judged, the reasonableness of any arrest had to be judged on a case-by-case basis, and that it was fundamentally a jury trial to decide which, uh, wh- whether an arrest was objectively reasonable or not, because it had to be done on the basis of community standards, and there's no better uh, way of evaluating community standards than to allow a jury to decide a question like that, and that water sort of the, uh, the Supreme Court's decision that water took that away from uh, the purview of the court. So um, I don't know if that was where you really wanted to go with all this, but that, that, that's the history of what was well, referred to on Wikipedia. I, that is a huge chunk of um, the sorts of things that one will hear about you. Uh, and but let's get into securitization because we certainly do not want to linger in this area when there's something of greater portent that we need to touch on. So now you had done a um, clerkship with a judge in um, Florida, and then you were hired on at a company in New York, and you were hired on to do litigation. And that was CWT. Why don't you tell us about what happened there? CWT, Cadwallader, Wahersham, and Taft. Well, the clerkship was kind of an interesting preview to all that because it was right at the end, the tail end of the SNL crisis, the savings and loan crisis of the late 80s, and we still had the cases that we were processing uh, in the the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida uh, that were related to the SNL crisis and uh, focused on the fiduciary responsibilities of bank officers and the duty to make good investments and to manage money properly in terms of purchase of real estate and uh, you know, management, management of uh, extension of credit. That's uh, a big part of what bankers do, especially as a savings loan, but it really is uh, one of the chief functions of banking everywhere and also in that in that clerkship I had the opportunity to organize and uh, coordinate a very large securities fraud trial uh, in Palm Beach, Florida, uh, which was very interesting. And ultimately my experience in the banking and securities interest uh, interests uh, related to the job I got. I got I got several of several offers from New York firms to do precisely that, to do uh, basically securities litigation um, and fraud analysis 
And the offer I took was a firm called Cadwallader, Wickersham, and Taft. Um, it's, uh, uh, it claims... It claims to be the oldest of all Wall Street firms. There's a lot of controversy over that because it wasn't called Cadwallader, Wickersham, and Taft in 1792, but they trace their origins back to an attorney by the name of John Wells who did have an office on right on Wall Street in 1792 uh, before the New York Stock Exchange even existed. And uh, so Cadwallader... It's very a very snooty place. <laughs> I should say it's not all that unusual in its snootiness. Uh, there are certainly firms like Sullivan and Cromwell, uh, Chad Vernon Park, uh, Wild Gottschall and Mangus uh, that are you know, very big, powerful, um, stuffy firms in their own right. And then there's places like Skadden and Harps that are just gigantic warehouses of you know, over a thousand lawyers. Uh, so, Cadwallader is just part of that New York uh, Wall Street law firm community, and they were working very hard on their bicentennial when I was uh, there for my interviews in 1992. And anyhow, they were also thinking of opening a, an office in Los Angeles, and that, that if I joined the firm, I might be, you know, sort of a a colonizing member of that uh, of that Los Angeles branch, and my wife really liked Los Angeles, and so we thought that it all worked out pretty well because she had relatives in New York. I loved New York, and uh, yet we'd, we'd ultimately be able to move to L.A. So I took that job, and um, as it happened, I was hired by the litigation department, but there was no work in the litigation department at that particular moment. Uh, no securities fraud cases at all, uh, and the, the entire firm was focused on something that was pretty much out of my expertise. Uh, it was, I think, it, it, it was like a 350 or 400 person firm uh, at that at that stage, and as far as I could tell, everyone in the entire firm, from the very senior partners. Uh, one of whose name was also CWT, Courtney Webster Terrain, all down to the lowliest paralegals and legal secretaries. They were all working on something called the Excel Mortgage Project, E-X-C-E-L. Uh, and Excel Mortgage uh, was sort of a startup firm that was engaged in something called securitization. And okay, I mean, that sounds vaguely like my specialty that was supposed to be litigation, secure, uh, securities litigation, but it wasn't exactly that. This was the process uh, of creating new securities, uh, and, you know, based on what I'd learned in law school and what I was aware of all this, I thought, okay, that means issuing, issuing stocks and bonds, registering them with the SEC. But what Cadwallader had pioneered... Uh, was a process of what they called the process of deriving equity from debt. Uh, and we get the phrase derivative securities uh, from that. Uh, and the, the fascinating thing about derivative securities is, of course, they're born in what everybody thinks of as the supremely capitalistic free enterprise uh, atmosphere of Wall Street, uh, that's very misleading because really what uh, securities are have been ever since they became a big deal are a way of kind of returning us to a form of feudalism. Uh, the language is very close to uh, the language of feudalism, you pledge faith, uh, you pledge service uh, and property as collateral, uh, and basically debt and equity are, you know, two faces of security, which most people understand is the difference between stocks and bonds. Stocks are equity, uh, ownership, and bonds are debt. 
but Cadwallader wanted to see how you could flip debt into equity and equity make new equity out of debt. Uh, and they were in the process of de- de- designing all these new things that were neither stocks nor bonds, but derivatives. And the Excel mortgage project was significant, not because it was the first time they had ever done this, because Cadwater and other New York firms had been uh, engaged in the issuance of, der- of uh, mortgage-backed, mortgage-note-backed derivative securities for some time, but they were all through private placements. Now, private placements means that only specially qualified investors like pension funds and other banks, large corporations and, you know, people who can demonstrate net worth in excess of X millions of dollars can buy because uh, they're considered riskier or more unusual types of investments. Um, but Cadwallader was perfected, was so interested in perfecting derivative securities, they believed that they could, and with Excel Mortgage, they were going to issue, uh, get the, they were going to persuade the Securities and Exchange Commission to register for public sale to the public on NASDAQ or NYSE, wherever, wherever it could be sold, the, a derivative bond based entirely on uh, equity in homes based on mortgage notes, which are debt instruments. Had a three-step process there. Had a three-step process there of derivation. And this was the very first time that there was going to be an IPO of uh, uh, such a a derivative mortgage bond. And the secrecy inside the firm was immense. Uh, everybody was working on this project. No one was permitted to take any paperwork or computer files out of the building uh, the, where the law firm was located. Uh, as a matter of fact, we were all searched uh, before we left um, and not permitted to bring in laptops or anything like that. So it was uh, a very strange atmosphere and very intense and uh, basically everybody was in all the different departments was spending all their time working on Excel Mortgage. And uh, since there was nothing for me to do in litigation, my other specialty, uh, you mentioned I have a PhD in anthropology and experience in archaeology, and basically that uh, had caused me in law school to spend a lot of time on what was called environmental law uh, and as even... <coughs> even federal Indian Native American law, and uh, all these properties, the 1,500 properties that were going to the Excel mortgage bond, all of them were located in Arizona, which, of course, is in both environmentally sensitive desert and archaeologically rich territory uh, uh, on top of that. So what they assigned me to do was a title search through all the all the fifteen hundred properties that were becoming part that were going to be pooled together, and we were going. And I, my job was to see if there were any environmental issues with any of the properties. Uh, this was very intense, tedious, time-consuming work, uh, but I was puzzled by it, and I was very confused when I first got there because remember I thought I knew something about securities law. And they were basically doing something that I had never heard of. Uh, and I did my time on the environmental issues and, you know, went through, uh, you know, tens of thousands of, of documents uh, relating to these 1,500 properties uh, and basically never, never found much in the way of environmental significance in any of them or archaeological significance as far as that goes. But the whole process uh, was fascinating to me because I was, I'm was i certainly familiar with the process of real estate development, process of corporate, uh, corporate finance, 
And this had nothing to do with real estate development or corporate finance in any traditional sense. It was all about totally, literally picking, cherry-picking properties for their size and market price and putting them in a basket together. Cherry-picking a very precise analogy. You know, you were only looking for cherries of a certain size, a certain potential market value. They were not part of a single development. They were not part of a single community. They were not being manufactured by any particular uh, construction company. There was no economic unity to this project at all. And I had never heard of anything quite like that before, that you were going to try to put all these properties together in a bundle and sell them as a, as a single economic unit that was going to be uh, somehow profitable or producing an income stream to someone. And so, you know, just because I was an academic, I guess, and I already had a Ph.D. in addition to a J.D., I decided I wanted to understand this. And so I started researching it, and I started uh, spending late, late nights uh, after I had done what I was supposed to do, continuing to work on the Excel mortgage project and understanding how this thing was being put together. And uh, people who are familiar with the culture of law firms have probably heard of something called billable hours and how, you know, all young associates are evaluated based on how many hours they bill per month. Well, my first, my very first month, uh, you know, you got to remember there are only 164 hours in a week, and there are only four weeks in a month, uh, a few days left over, but I managed to bill close to 400 hours my first month there, uh, and the senior partners thought that they had made a very good hire at that point because very few people can start off with uh, 400 hours in a, in a single month, and I came within like a few hours of having done that. Uh, but it was because I was trying to do all this research to completely understand the project we were engaged in. And I didn't stop after the first month because... I just kept getting more and more confused, really, about what I was seeing. A corporation that you're going to sell stock in is normally a managerial or asset-based unit. Either you've got a team that's working together or you've got a, a series of factories or something. There's some, there's some kind of functional social economic coherence to something that you're going to sell to the public. And I was trying to figure out how you could sell unrelated notes and unrelated properties to people and call it an economic unit. And uh, I just get, kept getting more and more confused about all this and, you know, talk, trying to talk to some of the uh, senior associates, and including the guy who was in charge of the Excel coordinate, who was, he, he, of course, loved this project because he said, I'm going to make partner on this, you know. Uh, uh, his name was, um, I think, Jer Jer Jeremiah Epstein. Uh, and he was quite confident that he was going to make make partner based on his worth. And he was like a fourth or fifth year associate at Cadwallader. And he was billing close to 400 hours uh, <coughs> a month. And he had been working on this thing for years, so he was he was impressed with my hours, too. And um, basically, we spent more and more time talking uh, about this, and I kept getting the feeling that something major was missing. And what was missing was any coordinate responsibility for uh, the creation, maintenance, or value valuation of these properties. It was basically chaos being thrown into uh, a basket and homogenized. It was kind of like the process of making pasta. You take a bunch of seeds, you grind them up, you have no idea uh, what plant they come from or anything else, but you make something brand new out of it. 
And that, of course, bread's a good thing, pasta's a good thing, uh, made out of wheat. But was this anything like bread, or was there something terribly wrong with this? And I kept feeling like there was something terribly wrong with it. And ultimately, it came down to the question of obligation, contract, and ownership. Obligation, contract, and ownership are things that you simply cannot homogenize, at least not in the traditional uh, sense of uh, a world where private property and individual rights are ever going ever respected. And uh, I haven't let you say a word in several minutes now. Well, I, I, I haven't it's really fascinating. because you're just <laughs> doing a wonderful job, Charles. I, can I throw a question in real fast? Uh, we've got about uh, we've got about five minutes left in this segment. We have more empty houses right now than we have homeless people. How does this apply? How does it apply? Um, it's it's a crime. Uh, it's uh, it's a different aspect of the problem. I mean, my in, other than securitization, my my other specialty in law school was antitrust law, and what the banks are doing right now is they are trying to artificially support prices by keeping homes off the market. Uh, it is um, it is a classic. Sherman Act violation of unprecedented proportions. Uh, the theory of credit is based on one thing, and very few people realize this anymore, although in my mother's day, and my mother uh, you know, attended uh, University of Chicago back in the early first World War, World War II days, uh, but in her days they were actually teaching in economics at, at the University of Chicago, that uh, the theory of credit economy was dependent upon a policy of perpetual inflation, that, there, that you could never have a decline in values uh, or a decline in prices um, in, a, in, a, in a credit-based economy. And, you know, the reasons for that... Uh, basically have to do with uh, how you create money. Uh, and the, way, the only way you can create money in a, in a credit-based economy is by increasing the money supply at a faster rate than the rate of goods and, goods and products and services. Uh, and so the banks are engaged in basically what is from their standpoint, an absolutely essential crime, uh, but it is criminal under the under the uh, Sherman uh, Antitrust Act, uh, of price fixing by agreement that foreclosed houses must not be sold unless they can be unless and until and unless they can be sold at a higher price than that for which they was they were foreclosed on. Uh, if you can't achieve this result. On a market-wide basis, then the entire mathematical operation uh, of the system is going to collapse. You're going to be left with def with market-driven deflation. Uh, the state of Florida is probably the worst example of what you're talking about. There are two million empty houses. Never mind the condominiums. There are two million empty, freestanding houses. Uh, in the state of Florida. I don't know if anybody's even counted how many condominium units there are that are empty. Uh, but in the state of Florida, if you were to put those 2 million houses on the market, and let's say that 10% of them had to be bulldozed because of mold, neglect, or whatever, you would drop the price of houses uh, in Florida by close to 90%. Whoa. And yeah, the, 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 this is all out there. They, they've already figured out figured this out that uh, two million additional houses in the Florida market, not counting condos, would drop real estate prices by ninety percent. The banks of Florida would basically be wiped out. Uh, the real estate brokers of Florida would be wiped out. Uh huh. 
So we've got about one minute uh, left in this segment, uh, and, and this does go back to the work that you were doing for the firm. Uh, that that the being able to bundle is a major part of what caused the bubble. Can you address that real quick? I'm not sure I can because I wasn't. I was not actually on the inside during the bubble. Uh, what I predict, I'll just tell you what I predicted in my, Please. my less than one year career at Cadwallader. <laughs> I predicted, I, they, 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 they did not want me, and that's, that's a, another story, but, um, the, uh, basic prediction I made was not one of these debts will ever be legally collectible once you securitize them. Once you have securitized and bundled these mortgages, None of them will ever be legally collectible because you've, destro you've destroyed privity of contract. You've destroyed any opportunity to exercise traditional holder uh, in due course doctrine. Uh, the basis for negotiable instruments as secured instruments uh, relating to property has been abolished. This is a fraud. It is uh, a fraud that you're committing uh, against every person who buys uh, a securitized mortgage. So, uh, in, in this pool. Okay, That's now, my prediction. Now, here's where it really gets good. <laughs> Melinda, please take off with your, you guys have come up with an well, idea here's, of. Here's the basis, of course, for the solution. Right? Well, I mean. You said it's a Ponzi scheme. And your strategy for, uh, Reversing this whole process is litigation that proves the fraud, right? Well, and litigation that undoes the illegal transfers. Uh, I mean, fraud, the, 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 the fraud, the fraud is one side of it, but the complete subversion of uh, negotiable instrument law is another one. Let's let's talk a little bit about the Ponzi scheme idea, because that may not be apparent to everybody. You start with fifteen hundred houses. Um, and each one of these houses has at least one note. Uh, I think in, in that original Excel, they, only, they, they were only doing one, a maximum of one note, one note per house. These days, you know, a lot of people have second mortgages, but uh, those usually go, go into second, second, second pools anyhow. But you had 1,500 houses with 1,500 notes. Now, um, according to what you would call the value-added theory, of notes, a note is um, a, a, is a negotiable instrument, just like a check or an IOU, any promise to pay, uh, that carries with it something else. A note on real estate is not just a promise to pay; it's a pledge, very much like I said in the feudal model of pled pledging. It's it's a feudal a pseudo feudal pledge of uh, your property uh, to your master. And basically the bank that originating uh, uh, is, your, is your lord and master under this season, under this, uh, under this system. And so you've got a note which is a, uh, a hybrid document which uh, contains both a promise of debt, a, de a, de a debt, proof of debt called a promise to pay, uh, and uh, the security, which is uh, the pledge of property uh, in lieu of payment. Pledge of property in lieu of payment. Uh, and it's, there's also a third element of it, which is a pledge of labor. Uh, basically, you're, you're, you're committing yourself to generating the payment sufficient to pay interest on top of the, the money that you actually have uh, borrowed or been 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 given to you as credit. Uh, so there there are three pledges. There's the pledge there's the pledge of uh, there's the pledge of payment of the principal. There's the payment pledge of the interest in the property. And then there's the payment there's the pledge to work harder. Uh, pledge pledge your labor to pay interest uh, on this. And the, most most mortgages also contain a pledge to maintain uh, your property in basically pristine and perfect condition. Uh, that uh, slightly more complicated. Uh, in a little bit differs in, in each mortgage contract, but basically you're making a whole series of promises relating to your 
uh, a refill note which enhanced the value of that uh, of that uh, of that original note. Now, uh, that is why, in a in a, in what 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 Walter would have called a well-conceived mortgage bundle, uh, you can sell these bundles of notes at a premium based on what you expect the appreciation in the property to be. Um, and uh, so you're, you're creating, you're, you're taking this equity that you don't really own in the 1,500 houses. Uh, it's a contingent interest. It's a contingent interest based on uh, failure to pay, basically. But if everything works out, then uh, you're, the property that's being pledged as collateral we, will be worth more at uh, the end at the end of a, uh, the credit period than it is at the beginning. Um, and so you can sell these uh, bundles as a premium, but then you don't really just want to sell the expected present value of a future interest in property. What you really want to do is you want to turn that uh, expected profit into the ability to acquire more interest in property by, uh, guess what, issuing, approving the issuance of more notes. Uh, basically, you're converting your debt into equity, step number one, slightly fictitiously because you're looking at the future, and then you're borrowing against that future uh, to acquire more property, which, of course, what will you do with that? you will uh, turn that into yet more equity against which you can borrow more property. Now, uh, also inherent in the Cadwallader um, plan was this idea that if you wanted to, you could skip levels in trading these securities. Now, if you think about it, you start out with 1,500, 1500 properties. The minute you buy the second uh, realm, uh, the, the second round of properties with the debt that you issue based on the equity that you acquired through uh, the sale of the first bonds, the minute you've done that, uh, you've doubled the size of the pyramid. And every time you uh, issue an, a new security and borrow more, borrow more money against future equity, you're doubling the size of the pyramid. And that's where we get the idea that we can call this the greatest Ponzi scheme in world history. Uh, Charles Ponzi was a rank amateur. He had no idea what he what, what the real potential of uh, his idea was, but the banks have pretty much latched on to it and have carried it whole hog to where uh, Excel is now, um, you know, the, that original investment has been something like uh, to the 13th exponent. Multiply. Oh, wow. There's no there's oh, there's God. no word for it. There's, there's no word for uh, uh, how much they have built on this. The, the 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 scale of the Ponzi scheme, and that's just one company. And yes, Cadwallader does continue to be one of the top leaders in this field. But there are lots of basically every other major bank in the world, uh, at least in the Western world, is in, is involved in it. We've got about 12 minutes left. Let's go on the offensive. How can we use securitization to take back what's been taken from the people? Now, with all in all in all fairness, this is more this is really more uh, Melinda's idea than mine. Um, what we're uh, hoping to do is, frankly, find people who will invest in uh, invest in litigation hard money. Uh, very few people who issue credit will be willing to participate in this program. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet. But what we want to do is we want to uh, use litigation to undo these transfers. Uh, I would be willing to say that we should go back. If we can, I don't know if we can go go all the way back to 1994 when Excel was uh, the IPO was done. But I think we could we can we can fairly securely go back to year 2000. And maybe we can go all the way back to the beginning of MERS in 1995. Um, but basically, 
we should we should litigate wherever we can to undo all these transfers, reverse them, and put the property back on the market in at fair market value. It, fair market meaning available market, uh, available invent, inventory compared to demand. As you said, there are more uh, homes em- sitting empty in the United States than there are homeless people in the United States. Uh, I don't know that uh, what, 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 what will happen to all the houses if they were if they were ever put on the market. But I know that we won't be able to put them all on the market uh, at once. So it'll probably be a gradual process. But basically, we need we want investors to invest in litigation to undo as many of the transfers as can be done, and then to basically crash the price of real estate and have a, a market-based economy that is based on fair market value of supp- related to supply and demand uh, for houses uh, in a real-world sense without monopolization, without price fixing, uh, and basically it will be what I would call an economically rational world uh, in that uh, we won't be having, I mean, here in New Orleans, beautiful example, uh, there are all sorts of things that are going on in, in, the, in the New Orleans real estate market, but there was a house I was actually looking at about 20 years ago over by Tulane University. And, you know, for various reasons, my, my, my life was otherwise occupied at that point. I didn't buy it, but uh, uh, it was uh, selling for $86,000. That same house today, old old 19th century Victorian house, uh, is, currently on the, is currently on the market for $4.2 million. Now, New Orleans has not changed that much in the past 25 years. The economy of this town has been through Hurricane Katrina and BP oil spill since then. Uh, The only thing that's driving prices to an insane levels is credit. Uh, The availability of irrational credit uh, permits people in certain markets to bid up properties uh, without any reference to supply or demand of anything. It's just like um, playing Monopoly because the money is generated in exactly the same way. Uh, and, you know, all, all over California, you saw very similar things happening. California and Florida, New York City. I mean, New York City in the late 70s, uh, not, yeah, in the late 70s, basically, you know, on the verge of bankruptcy, uh, you know, prices were not, uh, by any stretch of imagination, uh, insane. And by the 1990s, the, you know, the, the Giuliani and his, his successors had totally transformed the city, uh, into, you know, multi-million dollar per square foot type of values. That didn't happen through supply and demand. It happened through credit. And basically what we need to do is we need to get back to a rational basis uh, economy based on supply and demand. And um, the way that securitization would come into this is that you would basically, uh, an investor would buy pools of cases that he wanted to invest in. Beautiful. You would buy pools of... <laughs> yeah, exactly. You would buy, you, you would buy right. pools of cases, and that would, give you, that would give you interest in pools of, uh, of real estate. But we wouldn't, I, I swear, in, in, in my vision, we would not then be creating more derivatives out of this. We would use the money that we had for the litigation, and basically it would be an old-fashioned... Uh, shareholding company uh, such as used to exist in the United States where if where you you actually own what you buy and uh, you know where y- yes you, you, you may be a 10% ownership 
Uh, you may have a 10% interest in 100 houses, but you'll know exactly what your interest is in which house, and you'll know exactly who your other, your other co-shareholders are, and so if one of you wants to buy out the others, there won't be a problem. You won't have to engage in fictitious foreclosures or, uh, you know, borrowing against uh, expected fictitious uh, future appraisals. Uh, it will all be part of a, of a basic contract. But in that sense, it will be the original. It will be going back to basically again rational and honest investing uh, for the purpose of rational and honest and honest ownership of property. Got that about, would be my goal. About five minutes left. Look in your crystal ball again, Doc. What would this do? The Occupy movement started as Occupy Wall Street. What will this do to Wall Street? Uh oh, ha ha. <laughs> It could uh, return Wall Street again to what I was saying a moment ago, honest and direct ownership of real property and real assets at fair market value determined by the laws of supply and demand. Uh, everyone on Wall Street would be poorer in the sense of fake millions, but the money and the property that they had would be more stable. The, the illogic of a policy of perpetual inflation, of, of an ever-increasing uh, economy, is that the world simply does not actually operate that way. We, you know, we, none of us, I think, want to see world population uh, increasing as fast as the money supply does. Uh, and yet, that would be the only way that you could have this kind of growth in an honest world is if world population was increasing that fast. We're going to address uh, that. And that would also it, uh, We have uh, Dr. Block is going to be with us on the next show, uh, and he's going to be addressing – there was this little mistake in economics about 200 years ago made by a man named Malthus, and we don't just have one world anymore. We have worlds. Uh, You've given us a perfect lead-in to that story. Melinda, please give us – what's the wrap-up here? We've got well, three I minutes. Well, the wrap-up is uh, Charles' site is homeownersjustice.com. If you go there, you can take a look at exactly what we're, what, what, what's going on. And the, one of the things you have to remember about this is right now the stock market is bad, the bonds are bad. This is a way that you can invest in a future that is very different, that brings the economy back under the control of the people directly and actually can turn a nice profit. And that's something that I think all of us want. And we want to put our money in something that's going to make a difference for us and for the world. And this is one of those things that you can do. Try to get that stock price down to a point where I can kick in a few bucks. I'll, I'll miss a couple of lunches to see Wall Street brought back under control, to see future security. Uh, last thoughts from you, Doc. I hope we can make it happen. I hope we, I hope we can actually, uh, we, we've, we've started in, the, the best start we've got is in the state of New Jersey right now. We are, uh, We've just passed a critical moment uh, in, in two of our cases in New Jersey where we're challenging the firm that basically abolished the law of private property in, in, and private interests in the state of New Jersey. And we've got, a, we've got the ear of a federal judge. And um, if we can do that in New Jersey, that's close enough to Wall Street. It's a damn good start. And I can't think of a better way to for this show back out. I I just want to stress that this is about, we, we started two years ago to get Wall Street back under control. We are on the offensive. For two years, they've beaten us back. They have beaten us down. They've had us on the run. That's over. We are on the offensive, and we're about to take things back. These are efforts to try to do that. We need to think about winning, and we are winning. Uh, Doc, I've I got to say thanks here. Hopefully we'll have you back on the show. 
I, it was absolutely fascinating. Uh, Melinda, <laughs> as always, it was great. Uh, it's been lots of fun. And isn't he, he just, I told you there's never a problem. Charles can just keep talking. Well, let me go ahead and finish <laughs> out the show here. Uh, this was episode 23, I think, uh, Occupy Securitization. The key word there is security, future security, and we're winning, guys. Thanks for standing. Bye-bye. God bless. Bye-bye.